skipped over the laptop. Okay, yeah. let's, uh, let's do that. Let's that again. do that again. Okay. Hello and welcome to the Media Democracy Podcast. My name is Dan Hine and I'm joined as ever by my co-host Tom Mills. Hello. If you don't know our Twitter handles by now, we don't want you to listen to us. No, no way. We've had enough. You can find us. You can find us online. This is a podcast about politics, the media, and the politics of the media. And this week, we are recording a Christmas special. In person. We are in the same place at the same time. We... You probably um, thought that we were anyway, but that was actually, a, it was an illusion of technology. It was an illusion. The easy repartee that, yeah. that, 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 um, that we were able, able to put on was all about the editing. Um, it's for real this time. But it's for real. We're having a cup of tea, not leaf tea, I hasten to add, nothing fancy. Um, <laughs> and we're talking in the same room. Now, the, we're going to step back a little bit and just talk about the state of the political terrain at the end of the year, and then we'll see where the conversation leads us. Um, but before we do that, we're going to have a new series next year. Business as usual next year will be in separate places, talking over Skype, and Tom will sound like he's outside. <laughs> um, but we're keen to know if there are people you'd like us to talk to, if there are subjects you'd like us to discuss. Um, do drop All things you'd rather that we didn't keep talking about. That's true. That's true. If you've heard too much of, uh, about the BBC, we can stop. You know, uh, we work for you. <laughs> we are we are nothing if not responsive. Um, so if there are things, then do drop us a line on Twitter and uh, let us know what you'd like to see more of, and as Tom says, what you'd like to see less of. Um, so it's coming to we're coming up to Christmas, and I thought it'd be useful, Tom, to start talking a bit about where we are where the left is, how the left relates to uh, the political space more generally, yeah. and how that's playing out in the media. I mean, a nice place to start might be uh, with um, Alex Nunn's recent uh, brief exchange with Andrew Neil, where Alex pointed out just how far the guests on the Sunday Politics tilt to the right this was on Twitter.com. It's on Twitter.com. It's, it's easily excavated. Um, and Andrew Neil responded essentially by saying that, well, actually, if you look at these people that you're calling centrist, they're on the centre-left. And that speaks to me, I think, of a kind of an impermeability, sort of uh, a refusal on the part of a lot of um, big-name journalists to register the extent to which the political terrain has shifted, particularly since the election, but in many ways long before then. Um, and I think it, it it has a sort of family resemblance to your exchange with Nick Robinson um, a couple of months ago. So maybe you should start talking a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, so I think this was more or less when we signed off, wasn't it? The uh, that's right, Nick Robinson you, gate. You were in the in the weeds, what, kind of working out your issues with Nick. Yeah. Um, Nick, by the way, um, did you see that on also on Twitter that there was that photo circulating with him and the woman from Britain First? Because uh, and and he was sort of complaining about that because 
when, when she stood for election and got something ridiculous like 56 votes or something, she was a um, she was a candidate, and then she sort of gone up with it, got up to him, got a selfie, and then posted it on on Twitter. And he was like, "Look, I didn't know that she was who she was. Um, I was only reporting on the election. I had no idea what the candidacy." But anyway, um, I just thought I'd mention that because it kind of amused me that he didn't know who she was, even though he's a Lucy's um, the new political reporter. But there you go. Um, he was quite annoyed at that photo being circulated on Twitter. Um, so where were we with, with Robinson? I mean, basically, um, he had written a piece, hadn't he, on the, uh, the state of uh, politics and media, which is our specialist subject. And um, he had said that, you know, the, the problem is, is, is populism and social media, basically, hadn't he? Which is the kind of like the go-to argument for all of these people now. That the, you know, the centre is sort of crumbling and we're going to lose a bit of a sort of sense of um, truth and reality and sensible politics and the rest of it. And then, um, yeah, he sort of said that I misrepresented his argument, which is a bit strange, really, because I directly quoted what he said, and he was a bit all over the place. But there was a similar sort of thing with... Um, I think, I think what, what happened there. there was that you made the mistake of quoting what he actually said, rather than, rather than what he, he, in retrospect, would have liked to have said. Yeah, but it's difficult, isn't it, when you're trying to make sense of people's arguments, because... You need to anticipate um, what they might later claim that they said or thought, rather than quoting what they've written, and that creates all kinds of um, challenges. Which um, that's right, and I think this, you know, I think the, the the fact that people are are having what they say quoted back to them must be very disconcerting, because not so long ago you could just say things and then. Sort of say long regardless. It's true, and also like you know, he's a broadcast journalist, so you have the you think like you're normally just used to kind of yeah sort of pontificating on the airways, and it's just sort of floats away into yeah. nothing, doesn't it? Unless so, you know someone happens to be recording on tape recorder or something. But um, yeah, I think times have changed, haven't they? But, I mean, that's right, and I think if you are in that situation, if you've been in that sort of position, quite elevated position in public speech for for your career. Actually, the experience of being on Twitter must be a lot like being surrounded by a mob, <laughs> because you're, you're not used to having people feeling that they are your communicative equals, yeah. and, and actually being able to sort of engage with you um, in a way which isn't equal, because obviously you know, most people don't have anywhere near as many followers as them, and, and so on. But at the same time, it feels it must feel like being jostled in a crowd. Um, when you're used to being really in, in a quite sort of stately sort of place of isolation, yeah. Um, and again, I think you know the the um, the Andrew Neil response to Alex Nunes was very was very revealing because it just it was a sort of a declaration by fiat that oh no we still know what political reality is we know where the centre is and your claim that things have shifted after this extraordinary. Um, electoral upset in the spring, your claim that that's changed anything it makes you an extremist. That makes you that makes you an outlier. Yeah, people should ha have a look at this because basically, what Dan and I are talking about is that um, Alex has went back through loads of shows of the Sunday politics and sort of logging the guests, you know, to see how much the, uh, the the choice of guests reflected the political balance, and inevitably that means making sort of you know kind of contestable, let's say, judgments about where people are on the political spectrum. And in, in one of these tweets, you know, the, the claim was that a Guardian journalist, whose name I've forgotten now, who's, who was it then? Gabby Hinsliff, I think. 
Right. Um, yeah. So so Alex said that she was a centrist, and um, Andrew Neil basically just asserted, no, 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 she's centre left. You know, and the the thing is, they don't seem to they don't seem to have had any Corbyn supporters on at all. Like two or three, I think it was out, out of about twenty shows, was it? Um, I think Alex felt like three that. three that would reflect the the position of of the leadership. Yeah, which is kind of extraordinary, yeah. really, because yeah. when you think about um, how much there's been a political shift um, in the in the last few years, and, and actually, you know, I, I mean, I kind of pointed out before that in some ways the shift, there hasn't been a radical shift in attitudes, but in terms of where the BBC registers the political spectrum, i.e. in formal politics, there has been a radical shift, and there was a time where it seemed like for a period that the BBC and the other you know, the rest of the media were, were going to make some sort of political response to that. Um, and I don't know if if it's being ungenerous to say that, well, they just haven't done that. I mean, it doesn't seem to have been a significant shift. And we're back to this sort of, like you said, this position of just asserting where the political ground is. Yeah. And, and kind of just fobbing off someone like Alex Nunn. So I don't think it's ever really been on the BBC, as far as I'm aware. I mean... Um, I don't. I okay, just sort of making claims about <laughs> researching them, but so my not. I mean, he, he's not featured highly in BBC programs, has he? And even though you know he's a Corbyn uh, biographer of sorts, or let's say a sort of chronicler of of, of Corbynism, you yeah. think he would be somebody who you would have on the BBC um, as somebody who's certainly coming from a particular political place, but is able to explain, yeah. you know, yeah. a significant political phenomenon in, in our public life. In the same way as they constantly have biographers of David Cameron on. Um, well, right, and that's a really interesting analogy, isn't it? Can you imagine someone writing as kind of regard of a book about David Cameron or um, uh, Edward Miliband or, or whoever, and then being, and then the media going, "Well, we're not, we're not, it's just not that's just not relevant to our needs." Yeah. Just, I mean, we don't need to, and and it's not. I think. He's such an obvious person to have as a surrogate for the leadership. Someone yeah. who can talk freely, but is but is is sympathetic to their aims and ambitions. And he would be a great person to sort of debate with people if you wanted a sort of plural discussion about politics. The fact, as you say, that he doesn't feature—I mean, not, you know, te- like live television or you know, television debate isn't for everybody. But the fact that not only is he not present in in. Uh, in broadcast, but no one kind of like him is present in any like regularity. Mm. Points to this idea that Corbynism is still a sect, it's still an eccentric extremist sect, which we can kind of anathematize, and we can keep anathematizing until things go back to normal. Because if if they're right, then they're not just this kind of confused group of out of touch people who are constantly getting owned on Twitter, right? They're still vital and they're still important. Um, and this brings us to, I think, this this issue, I think, of the durability of the centre, the way that the, the, the centrist point of view seems so embedded in our general culture of public speech. Um, and this brings us, I think, quite neatly to the figure of, of A.C. Grayling, who has been recently back on his bullshit. Um, Twitter personality. Twitter personality. And, um, and also... And public intellectual. Public intellectual, um, and to give him his due, professional politician, um, philosopher. Right? He's a he is a, a capable um, philosopher in the um, Anglo-American tradition. Um, 
And so he's clearly not stupid in some simple way. Um, but at the same time, I think he's very—he's a very interesting figure in that he seems to be completely convinced of his rightness about issues of the day, without the need to interrogate it or examine his own his own beliefs or to test them against any kind of evidence. Um, and um, it made me look back at um, this period. Um, uh, towards the end of uh, the, the Bush, Bush presidency, where there was this enormous emphasis on the Enlightenment and its its values and so on. There's this interesting interview um, that uh, Grayling has with Todorov, where they talk, they're talking about the coordinates of the Enlightenment. And in it, it's clear that Grayling doesn't want to accept that Rousseau is an Enlightenment figure. He insists on, on seeing him as a, as a romantic figure. He doesn't want to accept that that Rousseau is an important Enlightenment figure. And I think this, I think, gets to the heart, in a way, of, of the new atheism's structuring of the world in, as a kind of dualism between light and darkness. Um, the idea that Dawkins and Hitchens and Harris in their different ways um, all kind of pursue with much more sort of rhetorical um, venom is an idea that I think Grayling shares, which is that you have a uh, an enlightenment which is simply about reason um, and a uh, a religious tradition they're fighting against, which is simply obscurantist, is simply irrational. And when you look at Rousseau's work, particularly on his distinction between narcissistic self-love and a certain kind of disinterested love for human flourishing, you find actually, I think, one of the mainsprings of the radical enlightenment, and it's it's a notion of a divided self, which is intensely problematic for people who want to divide the world into good people and bad people, divide the world into people that you should take seriously and those you can dismiss without reflection, without inquiry, without any effort at sympathy. Which I think is, is, is not only a feature of the New Atheism, but I think it speaks to the way that an awful lot of people who think of themselves as being in the centre organise the world, they find themselves thinking, you know what, I have more in common with decent, honourable Tories than I do with these, these momentum thugs. Or wouldn't it be great if all reasonable people could get together and sort out these problems which have essentially been caused by um, the irrational enthusiasms of the masses? It's definitely a thing, you know, with these new atheists. I mean, I remember, like, Dawkins has made a, a few remarks about this because I I remember... You, do you remember there was that kind of meme bit floating around um, about people sort of saying, oh, let me, let me fly the plane, let me fly the plane, the pilot's an elitist or something. And it was sort of being, you know, it was kind of being disseminated all over the place as, yeah, as yeah, if this yeah, was a good yeah. analogy for what was going on in politics, yeah, you know, yeah. which is just ridiculous. Because, I mean, of course, if the analogy worked, you'd have a sort of a pilot who was going completely rogue, taking people to places they didn't want to go, not landing properly, you know, getting drunk at the wheel. And, you know, you might have other people on who claim they might be able to fly the plane better, which, yeah, yeah, you know... Yeah. From that analogy, it doesn't look so ridiculous to me. Like, can we get this guy out of the cockpit and kill everybody? You know, but I remember that going around, and then it was, 
And, and then Dawkins had done this interview with the Sunday Times where he was more or less saying the same thing, that, but it was a very um, explicitly anti-democratic idea, which was, uh, you know, why would we have people voting about politics when this is actually an area of expertise? You know, like, it, and, and what happens when we do this? It's the idea. So it really does fit into that kind of, um, yeah, populist, uh, anti-populist kind of impulse, which seems to lie behind a lot of this centrism and a lot of this idea that yeah Corbynism on the one hand and um you know the, the sort of racist uh Brexiteers on the other right. are, are are each these sort of um yeah irrational passions that are gonna um yeah drive us off a cliff somehow uh, and that is that does generally seem to be how these people see the world I mean but going back to this sort of new new atheism thing um I mean AC as I'm gonna refer to him um would you say, if I say that he's sort of to the left in some sense of these other new atheists, he's, he's, he's a bit more like Dawkins when he's in a kind of gentle, urbane mood, isn't he? He's not, he's not as belligerent as... Yeah, in a sense, I think he's, more, he's a more interesting figure than, than someone like Harris, who is, you know, who's spoiled, spoiled for everyone by bringing out the, the sort of the, the implicit craziness in a lot of this uh, Enlightenment uh, 2.0 stuff. Um, because I think you're right, he does have a kind of liberal left-leaning set, set, set of instincts in some ways. Um, but, but uh, you see, I think what, what's, what's striking to me, I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned the, um, the idea that government is a, is, a, is a sort of technique that some people are good at, some people are bad at, which, again, I think speaks to a certain sort of glare nostalgia that's creeping into the centre. It's also that sort of platonic idea as well, though, isn't it? Like, uh, that, that's so, really ingrained in kind yeah, of British... So, so famously, in, in the, I think, in the Republic, Socrates says, think about democracy like this. He says, you know, if you, if you, were, if you had a ship, mm. would, you, what would, you, would you appoint the captain democratically? Didn't pirates do that? Somebody's, I read that somewhere. Oh, yeah, no, they did have elected captains, yeah. I think I'm... Um, um, <laughs> I think I get this from QI, to <laughs> <laughs> Listen to me, you Get your QR recycled, <laughs> recycled QI facts. Bring the eye. We bring them to you. Only several years. Slightly garbled. Repackaged. <laughs> repackaged QI facts. Brought up today with discussions of uh, of, of New Atheist philosophers. That's that's the Christmas special today. But um, so, well, yeah, so but, but, but the idea of the democratically selected captain is so Socrates was. Uh, you're saying Socrates was anti-democratic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah, and um, yeah. I mean, well, Plato as channeled by Plato. Yeah, um, but it, it seems that he was, you know, as a matter of sort of historical fact, he was very, very closely aligned with um, with the oligarchy, mm. and it's kind of a miracle that they let him live as long as they did, given his sort of complicity, I think, in in the oligarchic rule of terror, in fact, in, in Athens. Mm. Um, but and it, yeah, and just as an aside, it's important to bear in mind that that a lot of what we think of as being dispassionate critiques of democracy come from Plato and Aristotle as well. Now, you know, Western philosophy is born out of a visceral hatred and contempt for democracy. I mean, in, a, in a sense, Platonic philosophy is a is a reaction against the threat of democracy. And all that stuff gets kind of reinforced in the yeah the sort of British education system really strongly, doesn't it? Like particularly the public schools. I mean, notice that sort of 
yeah, like it all, all gets channeled through the classical kind of education, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, and I think you know it's it's it, the 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 kind of the the sort of the, the as it were the natural exposure to, to to the classics that one would have in these um, in the public schools is one which which takes Plato and Socrates and and so on at face value. And it is again. I think it's a very anti-democratic. Uh, it's a very, it's a very anti-democratic media. It's mm-hmm. it's a media which which um, uh, which inculcates deference to hierarchy and insists on you know the vital importance of not stepping out of line. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about cheerful conformity and improvisation within uh, within a set of rules that you that you ultimately res- you, you respect, as it were, in the daylight. Um, and then you try and work your way around at night. It's a, it's a very good... The public schools are very interesting because they're a very good preparation for public life. I'm as, assuming as that is AC is a product of the English public I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to presume. I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, one of the, one of the interesting things about this, this system is that it's, it is permeable. It does allow, um, does allow outsiders in. Um, if they show the sort of necessary energy and application, um, but going back to going back to this this the, the sort of centrist view of the world as being, as it were, a, a still stable point between extremes. What's really striking, going back to their their way of thinking about the Enlightenment as a as a sort of paranoid dualism, where you have the forces of darkness and you have the forces of light. And the city of reason is under siege, and we are struggling to protect the Enlightenment. We're struggling to preserve the Enlightenment. So, it's incredibly martial language, incredibly kind of militarized language to talk about struggle and to talk about almost like a jihad for reason, if you will. Mm. Um, the what's really striking about that is that it's become one of the really important strands in the alt right. So, rather than rather than finding a spectrum. Where you have the centre as being, as it were, as far from the extremes as one can be. What you find, in fact, I think, is this, this, what thinks of itself as the centre in Anglo America has incubated a kind of exterminatory um, account of the world, which has been taken up by important elements of the, fa- of the sort of fascist or neo-fascist right yeah. in the United States. And this, I think, should, like, if if these people are as keen on enlightened self-reflection as they say they are, it seems to me this should really give them pause to think. Like, why is it that their model of enlightenment is so appetising to fascists? Mm. What is it about saying that actually people who don't share my intellectual coordinates, don't share my particular way of constituting myself, are in some way external to me? There is some way, um, a, 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 as it were, a, a martial or, or a, a militarised threat to me. Like, what is it in that that might be taken as being encouragement for that? For that know, like, yeah, I mean, there's no denying, I think, now that, you know, there's a very clear kind of intellectual um, and political affinity between the ideas that, that come out of the new atheism, which you've been talking about, and, um, yeah, elements of... Uh, what's now called the counter jihad movement, and all right, as you said, like particularly this idea that um, 
this lack of self-confidence in, in the West and the Enlightenment idea of civilization and, um, and particularly this sort of notion of, of cultural relativism becomes this kind of uh, rallying cry for lots of, for a sort of, what might I suppose have been sort of kind of disparate political elements around the period of the war on terror where, yeah, th th there's this kind of mobilization against um, irrationality, against the idea of cultural relativism and like, bizarrely, I don't know how much much you've followed this now, but particularly, um, you know, activism on, on campus, you know, has become this big kind of thing for a lot of these people. And actually, if you, the, the, this notion of uh, rationality and being against boycotts and, like, in favour of debate and so on, I mean, that does start with Dawkins and all of these people, you know, which, uh, and, and that's really been picked up in a big way by the alt-right. And, um, and now, you know, and of course by people like the Nick Cohens of this world and, um, you know, uh, all, all the way to the sort of the, the far right and and the counter jihad and, and some of those people, you know, the, the sort of anti-social justice stuff, which yeah. anti-social justice warrior stuff that has really sort of picked up in the last couple of years, or yeah. I should say, get gotten picked up, got picked up in the last couple of years. I mean, definitely follows that that kind of thread really. Do, um, maybe we should bring so maybe we should bring things back to Brexit a bit because the thing that's got a B in AC's bonnet, really, is this question of how should we be politically navigating um, this issue of Brexit? Where's Corbynism on this, and what is the solution? And his position seems to be that, um, first of all, with a more effective centrist leader, I think he claimed the other day Labour would be on like 60 plus percent or something, which is 65. 65, which is pretty, yeah. that would be good. Um, and he's also, he spends a lot of the rest of his time on Twitter, um, and I can't comment on his philosophy because I'm not sort of a fan of it, um, talking about, yeah, this, this key issue of Brexit. So why do you think this incenses them so, and how does it relate to this kind of what you've been talking about in terms of, yeah, the politics and of the Enlightenment and all of that? Well, I mean, on the, on the, on the issue of like the way that Brexit is being used. I think a lot of people see Brexit as a way of stopping Corbyn increasingly. Um, I think a lot of people um, are, you know, this talk about the need for a centre party which keeps bubbling up um, in journalistic circles and in sort of the, the sort of periphery of, of the political class. Because yeah. there's never been a centrist party in Britain, has there? There's only well, two. There's never been a centrist pro, pro Remain party. Um, except for the was one, that one, except the one that we have, which yeah. didn't do terribly well at the election. And I think what's interesting about that is that, that I think there are a lot of people who would self-identify as being on the left, who feel completely bereft now that the Labour Party doesn't reflect their understanding of the world. The Labour Party exists in their minds to act as a break on capitalism, to to temper its worst excesses, and. And the key thing about a break is it's part of the mechanism. It's, it's integrated in the mechanism. And you can explain the need for a break to the people in the engine room. You know, you can say to them, look, we, we appreciate you want to go fast, but we, if we're going to manage this corner, we've got to slow down. We've got to, you know, we've got to sort of limit the excesses in a sense of way. So there's a kind of elite identity which understands the role of the left as being a civilizing or um, a technocratic kind of providing a technocratic input into the proper functioning of a capitalist economy. And they find themselves for the first time in, you know, more than a generation really, 
looking at a Labour Party that doesn't seem to be amenable to that worldview. And so they are, they, I think they feel bereft, and I think that the, the triumph of the, you know, a victory for Corbyn under any circumstances would be a real repudiation of their worldview. It would be a rejection of their worldview, and it would be saying essentially all the calculations you made about what was pretty possible were wrong. The thing is, the weird thing about this, though, is that you'd think we were already there. Like, you'd think we were already at a place where their worldview is at least, or self-confidence is at least in a road to the point where they might make some concessions. You know, I, I mean, to my mind, the last election, I um, put the whole sort of um, Blairite stroke centrist kind of um, political wisdom, like, just t- completely turned upside down. I mean, that's, that's the weird thing. I mean, I know, sort of, we made this point already, but, like, how is it that these people still don't see events unfolding as challenging their, sort of, uh, moorings, or, like, you know, sense of how the world works? Well, like I, mean, I say, I think that they, I think this is a very, this is a very kind of long-established identity that these people have, that they, you know, they exist in the, they, they, they move in elite circles, and they're the one at the dinner party who's teased for being like the Castro lover or the you know Che Guevara lover. You know they're used to being the left left wing person in the room, and their role was really to do that was to show that actually the left is, is part of polite society and that we've got something to offer. You know, a left perspective is can be constructive. Um, and then you've got you've got what is. Uh, in, in, in the Labour Party at the moment, a much more combative social phenomenon. Um, and they, as I say, I think they feel like, they feel that they've already been deprived of the Labour Party. Um, and if, if that, if the Labour Party goes on to win on a prospectus that isn't theirs, then what exactly are they for? Like, where do they fit in? And so, I think, because the rational, like if you are genuinely concerned about the impact of Brexit, it seems to me response would be to say, let's let's work with Labour as an opposition to ensure that Brexit is, is as you know as is the least disruptive Brexit we can have. Mm-hmm. Let's let's work for a Brexit um, which isn't going to be um, you know destabilising or, or minimises the instability that it causes. Instead of which they're saying Corbyn must sacrifice his political project to stop Brexit. Yes. Yeah. Nothing else is acceptable. Yeah, t- Tony Blair said that it, it's basically it, it, it's more important to stop Brexit than to form a Labour government. Yeah, the, particularly under Cor- Corbyn. I think yeah. that's the, in brackets. It's the thought of a Labour government under Corbyn that is is terrifying to them, genuinely, because, as I say, it throws into question just what the fuck they've been doing with their, with their, in their professional lives. Why have they been promulgating an idea of the left which is so like entirely bereft of elan entirely bereft of sort of swagger and you know creativity why haven't they come up with um a you know a left program of government why have they been accepting the idea that actually what we're going to do is maybe you know tinker with this or you know try and sort of roll back on austerity a little bit why haven't they come up with since, you know, it's been nearly ten years since the more than ten years since the financial crisis began. Why haven't these people developed an account of what a post-capitalist state looks like? I mean, quite genuinely, right? If they say they're on the left and they they, they claim that oh, we don't like capitalism, but it's inevitable. Yeah. We now know it isn't inevitable. 
certainly not nervous with the form it's taking now. And their lack of, of ambition would, I think, be, I think it would be brought home to them in the event that you had a, um, an administration coming in that actually wanted to do more than, than as I say, sort of temper the worst excess. Here's a question for you. What do you reckon the AC thinks about capitalism? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think, I think he probably doesn't think about it very much. Um, I, I think one of the interesting things about... I'm not saying you know the mind of AC. No. I mean, just generally, like, your impression of sort of enlightenment, uh, liberal enlightenment type thinkers. Because it, it seems like... Yeah, I mean, obviously that's a big theme, isn't it? Like, the extent of the, the rise of capitalism and, you know, enlightenment thought and everything. But, yeah, what's, what do you think? Well, I think one of the, one of the things that I, I was interested in my... Because I wrote a book about the about the sort of politics of the Enlightenment, like came out like more than a decade ago, more, more than ten years ago. Where, where can readers find this book? Well, it's available in a lot of thrift stores. And, um, it's um, it. I'm sh- look. I I'm not saying it's available for a penny on Amazon, but it might be. As, uh, as Plus postage. I'm just yeah, they're obviously they're going to stick it on the postage for that. What do you expect? Um, but I was you know I was really really interested in the politics of the moment, um, as I say, around about the end of the Bush era, because I could see the way that it was, it played a very important role post 9-11, and actually playing a role precisely in inhibiting and retarding thought, actually. After 2001, um, there's a very interesting um, passage by Joe Didion, where she talk, she's on a book tour, and she talks about there's this brief moment of openness after 9-11, where American audiences were interested in figuring out what was happening in the world. Like, they were suddenly jolted out of a, that certain sort of post-Clintonian serenity or, or indifference to the world. And immediately after this access this moment of inquiry, which she said was shut down by talk of the need for um, an enlightenment in the Middle East. So actually, the enlightenment was being, being mobilised very early in the war on terror as a way of stopping us from thinking or understanding um, the world, and and I think it it, it carried on playing that role um, in a really interesting. Um, so it's the idea there that the the attacks are basically motivated by this sort of um, irrational hatred, basically, and 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 that that's the driver behind the violence. That's right. That... So the idea is that you know, like the, the footage you see of angry people burning an American flag, right? So the 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 image that you have of the Middle East is of a place full of people who are just sort of irrationally angry about stuff. Yeah. They're enthusiastic, um, but they're also sort of possessed by this sort of very dark hatred of, of the United States and all, all its works. Because there was all that stuff, I don't know if you remember this, but like, they, they, you know, you'd have a sort of article and it would be about, um, you know, members of Al-Qaeda or whoever Al-Qaeda sympathizes or however they're described. And it, you know, journalists couldn't resist point, pointing out the fact that they're using the internet and somehow this was seen as a kind of, do you know what I mean? It was yeah. like, was oh, it's bizarre, yeah. you know, yeah. because on the one hand, you know, they have this sort of medieval backward sort of view of the world, and on the other hand, they they got a blog. Yeah, it's just like and, yeah. and 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 sort of somehow convince themselves that, that this was actually what what you were seeing unfolding in this sort of you know very grim political violence was genuinely some sort of stirring from yeah the, from the medieval period. That it's, you know, there was a lot right. of that, wasn't there? Right, exactly. And it was this idea that that um, that religious belief was a was a sort of an autonomous force in the world um, that could be f- fought back against using, like, reason. Mm. And there's a strong sense, I think, at the time that a lot of middle-aged men were getting their mojo back 
by going, oh, we've got to defend the Enlightenment and feeling like getting some sort of getting some sort of heat in their bones again. And I think it's exactly that point you're talking about again. You know, no more relativism. You know, now it's time for you know absolute truth, absolute yeah. values. We were yeah. nice in the 1990s, and look where it goes. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, and, it's been a disaster. And what was what was what was striking about it as well is that if you take Enlightenment, the Enlightenment as a historical event seriously. The Enlightenment was precisely about trying to understand society. Right? The idea was that human nature was in some sense knowable, that you can learn about um, what humans were like. And again, you know, Rousseau is involved in a very serious project of trying to understand human variability, trying to understand the ways in which different, you know, humans respond to different circumstances in different ways and so on. But rather than look at the ways in which, for example, um, Wahhabi Islam was a materially supported um, product of the Saudi state, the way that, that, that um, certain kinds of extremist Islam were tied up in, in the way that Saudi Arabia managed its domestic population, tied up in the way that America fought its proxy wars going back to the 1950s. The idea was that, that religion didn't have a material component. There was nothing material about it. It was just about these airy beliefs that it's sort of almost like a, a sort of witchcraft model of religion. It's just like it's a sort of disease of thought you could cure with, with arguments. Or bombs. Or bombs. And exactly. And it's like, either you can like, listen to our delusional account of why you do these things, or we'll kill you. Yeah. Um, so it was, I think, yeah. It, it was, so, yeah, politics yeah, has wrong ideas, isn't it? And you see that. Um, you see that with the Brexit stuff, you know. And it's kind of like, yeah, these people have wrong ideas. What are we going to do with them now? You know, because now that they've they've won the referendum, yeah, we find ourselves yeah. in this difficult sort of position. How can we tell them that they that they can't have what they said they wanted? Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, the idea that that the idea that politics might be about the clash of, of you know potentially irreconcilable differences of, of interests is, is is not permitted in their worldview. And again, I think this goes back to this idea that. That the Enlightenment is 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 often used as a way of of preventing thought. So um, at the time that I was writing uh, the book, I was aware that there were these imbalances in the global economy. There was there was a very strange thing happening, particularly in in credit markets in around the world. While Dawkins and others were talking about this incredible, you know, this this incredible sort of invented world of religion um, that, they, that they were sort of tilting against. There was this much more interesting and important delusion at work mm. in financial markets. There's yeah, a much yeah. more interesting set of delusional and dangerous beliefs about the way that market forces could be left to manage. Particularly the idea that market forces in some way could manage the production um, of credit, which, which is, is a... Um, is a faith-based proposition of a very Did you see that um, Economics Needs a Reformation article that um, was on the, uh, the Guardian? It was, um, and it was, um, what's the fella's name from um, Kingston University who does the, all the stuff on uh, heterodox? Oh, um, K- uh, King. Yeah, yeah. He'd, um, Steve King. Yeah, he'd, he'd done a sort of version of Luther's... Um, Thesis and uh, pinned it to the door of uh, the NSC or something. Oh, did he have fun? Yeah, they were yeah, quite yeah, a good yeah. writer. But it was it was more or less making this point. Well, the point that you were going to make, I imagine you were going to make about yeah, and, and about economics being a sort of religion and needing need a kind of reformation because yeah, yeah. it's just not actually able to describe the world. It's and obviously you know it's, it's kind of become dogma. 
But no, I mean, I think what you're saying is absolutely spot on. It's like, the, the thing is with the, like, the Dawkins and the rest of them, and I guess we, we come here from me asking the question whether these guys think about capitalism, haven't we? But I mean, yeah. But, but the answer, my, my answer to that is, I think they talk about religion in order not to think about capitalism. Yeah. Or in order not to think about the nature of social reality. Uh, and I think that that's what's so crazy-making about their project. It was so popular, so influential, and such a betrayal of the Enlightenment values, it seems mm. to me. Um, because, as I say, they, they, they were surrounded by these really powerful, you know, ex- as it were, executive mysteries. Like, people who ran economies, people who ran big companies, people who ran big banks, were, were incredibly delusional about what they were doing incredibly delusional about the system that they thought that they were inhabiting. And yet they were surrounded by these these brave, truth-seeking philosophers who had no idea, had no interest in what was actually this kind of you know, unfolding... The mystery. thing about these, these guys, though, and they are mostly guys, is that... So I guess A.C. Grayling is a philosopher, but a lot of them are, are natural scientists. And, you know, they, they sort of have this sense that, okay... Social science is sort of a waste of time, basically, because, you know, just uh, th- th- that's all basically nonsense. And we, we need to just have sort of proper science, which is which is basically, you know, obviously like the hard sciences. And then you get someone like Dawkins, who is like, OK, he gets so incensed about religion that he, he thinks it's stupid. So he doesn't need to waste his time sort of figuring out what it is or what religious people think. Because he knows it's just nonsense. But he's also not interested in like in other forms of ideas, or even, like, human institutions particularly. You know, like he just he just sort of sees them as being, oh, we let those people get on with that, and they're, they're sort of experts in the same way as I'm experts on, on genes, you know, and we can all just crack on and everything will, will be fine. It's, it's kind of extraordinary, really. That, uh, but the, yeah, sorry, I was... Uh, well, no, that, I mean, I think that's an interesting point. It goes back to this, this issue of the divide itself as being, like, as it were, a prerequisite of an enlightened... Identity, the, the 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 great appeal of the natural sciences is that you can, as it were, in like you you can you can feel that you're engaging in the world as it is. You're making a, an assessment of the world um, that is, as it were, it's a set of mechanical, quasi-mechanical processes that are independent of the observer, yeah. right? And and there is a there's a reality out there that's independent of observation. And I don't want to go into the, the extent to which that story about the natural sciences that, that, that they promulgate is often complete gibberish, right? So a lot of the, the, the sort of naive defences of natural science are actually just factually wrong um, in their claims about um, the nature of um, the physical world. Um, but, but crucially, when you come into the realm of the human, you, you are faced with the problem that you are you're not a disembodied angelic observer of something separate from yourself. Mm. The ideas that you entertain, the um, the the ideas that you're willing to consider, um, will have a material impact on you. Mm. And and then and I think that part of the job of the modern intellectual who wants to survive is always to be insulating themselves against taking positions that will do them professional harm. So when you are, you're much safer, obviously, to talk about the existence or non-existence of God than to talk about, like, dysfunction in capital markets. Because when you start talking about dysfunction in capital markets, their partisans really exist, right? You can fantasise about the agents from the Vatican 
chasing you, like albino giants in Dan Brown novels coming in, you know, chasing after you or whatever. And they do often fantasise about like Muslim extremists killing them. That's or, right, like, right. You know, you'll, you see that a lot, you know, yeah. Nick Cohen and the rest of them will always be a bit like, oh, you know, you wait till the Muslims are in control and they're executing everybody. They're like, yeah, yeah. Nick, that's that's not going to happen. That isn't, like, I mean, that's a, that's a less clear and present danger, it seems to me, than the kind of inquiry into the social that a, like a journalist or a, a uh, would-be public intellectual might make when they start talking, for example, about the politics of the media, talking about the political economy of the media. Yeah. Doing that is to rattle the cage of a monster that really exists, yeah. right? Which is a which is a system which does not like to be described in ways that it that it doesn't have you know ultimate control over or that aren't subject to certain kinds of collective vetting. So. Again, this business of the Enlightenment being used as a way to forestall or prevent thought is really important because any intellectual worth their soul would start by saying there is a there is a social world that that stands in need need of inquiry, and there is also there is also me, there's myself, and my need to to not starve, and those two things may they may run into one another. They may there may be there may be a price to be paid. Um, and actually, if you're serious about enlightenment values, you want to ensure that it's possible to discuss power without reprisal. This is the thing, like, I mean, I want to sort of bring it back to, you know, the media. If you, you, you do get these kind of um, moments where the journalist, you know, BBC journalist himself is sort of brought into the conversation as somebody who, you know, might have an opinion or a position on something. And I don't know, of course I'm impartial. And now you need to say that with a little bit of a chuckle or, you know, a sort of knowing comment. But that is the whole assumption under which, you know, these public conversations take place, basically. And, yeah, well, I, I do think we're entering an interesting sort of moment now where, I mean, and this brings back to what you were saying earlier, that the sort of contestation that we now have has destabilised some of those assumptions about how... Um, public debates and discussions take place and are sort of, you know, adjudicated and, 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 and chaired with, with that sort of disinterested kind of, um, you know, Melvin Bragg, Stroke, Andrew Marr kind of style. You know, and there's a, you, you see it on Twitter, you know, with people sort of treating uh, or claiming that the people at the BBC are part of the elite and the rest of it, or claiming, pointing out that they are <laughs> part of the elite, I should say. And... and it's interesting. I mean, it, I mean, it definitely has a destabilizing. It's definitely sort of. Um, it's definitely got them um, a little bit rattled. But what it's not done um, to bring it back to where we started with this is it's it's not shifted them, which then raises the sort of question: Would they ever move? You know, what would it actually take to have the BBC and the Observer um, take? on board some of the political changes that are taking place. And, it, I mean, it is extraordinary, because, you know, we're, we, you know we, we've been talking for three quarters of an hour or so. We can't really go back over everything that's changed in the last few years, but it has been the most extraordinary period of political um, transformation. And yet, at the same time, you know, if, if you sort of compare that to um, the lack of change that has taken place, and that we're not even talking about sort of media structures here, but, you know, the sort of routine ways in which you might, um, let's say, frame a debate or um, bring in different voices, it just, there just hasn't been a shift, you know, and I, I think that's, I think that's an extraordinary sort of thing, and I think the ubiquity of Tony Blair in The Observer, um, sorry to bring him up again, is also just symbolic of that sort of 
problem that we seem to have where there's this just sort of sense that we're just not moving anywhere, you know, and, and these people are just still dominating the conversation in a way that, and, and like, in the, like, listening to Tony Blair, you know, he was, he was described as kind of a masked strategist or something. Yeah, and it's just like, yeah. well, I mean, that's, that's clearly not the case, you know, like, he was operating under a particular political and social conditions which were kind of amenable to a right-wing Labour Party that, that no longer exists, but, like, there doesn't seem to have been a sort of acknowledgement of that. But um, I don't know well, whether us sort of complaining about this will have any change. Obviously not. But I mean, well, as you say, I mean, I mean, firstly, I mean, Blair was the master of preemptive surrender, wasn't he? So like, his strategic genius was to say, whatever the city and the Americans want, we're going to do, and that, that's some of his political genius. Quite brilliant. Um, which is, yeah, in a way, it's uh, a, a, a master stroke. <laughs> Um, Quite brilliant. The podium had had the wit to just yeah, run away and cry. He would never have lost the battle. <laughs> People would still be writing songs about him. The undefeated. <laughs> you can't be defeated if you run away. Yeah. Um, and but 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 you know more generally, like as you say, there's been a, there's there has been an extraordinary s- sort of sequence of events. Um, going back, going back to the, to the Iraq War, um, but actually going back as well back to the, the late nineties, you see the beginnings of a, a fracturing of a, a certain sort of capitalist consensus in the late nineties. I think that process of decomposition, if you like, of capitalist common sense, is arrested very successfully um, by the war on terror as a way of organising um, both domestic and international politics. But then you have the you have this great rupture of the financial crisis. Um, you have these really an in, really interesting set of political responses to talking more parochially, talking about the UK. You have um, you have things like UK and cut. You have student occupations. Mm-hmm. You have um, you have that leading into St Paul's occupation and, and quite a wide widespread of um, people engaged in a certain sort of response to you know a kind of radical planning of space. Which I think then has its, you know, it, that feeds into the Corbyn campaign. Right? It's not, it's not the case that um, it was, a, it was a simple matter of occupying labour. I mean, the, the kind of, clearly the labour, the existing labour base had enough of being led by um, that kind of neoliberal cadre. Um, the trade unions had had enough as well. But I think that the people who had come out of those protest movements have moved into labour and have and have been part of that process of reinvigoration in the party. And yet, as you say, like the 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 media have been startlingly incurious mm. about not just the events themselves prior to their erupting into crisis, but also incredibly dismissive and uninterested, it seems to me, often in the in the kind of popular responses to them. And you see that, you know, most most profoundly in the case of like attempts to sort of rule Corbyn out. Uh, in 2015, and you, it makes you wonder, you know, what is, you know, what is going on in centre-left media? What is going on in what we think of as liberal or left-wing media? Why is the, why are the New Statesman, much of the Guardian, and much of the Observer so adamantly hostile to the idea of of you know, to, to left-wing ideas fundamentally, mm. and and to the idea that there may be some room for democratic advance, right? Why is democratic advance so standardly described as mob rule or you know misrule somehow, um, and 
you know, this brings us back to, uh, you know, uh, something we've touched on before, which is that the last time Labour built itself into being a, uh, a national party with a transformative agenda, it did intervene in the media space. Mm. Um, uh, Ernest Bevan invested in media, he used union funds to invest in media assets in order to ensure that there was a space in which Labour's ideas, Labour's values, Labour's worldview could find popular expression. And it seems to me it's, a, it's an urgent matter, it seems, to, to start, start seeing that the, 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 um, the more dynamic parts of the Labour movement taking seriously the need to, to engage more, in a more sustained way in the media space. Yeah, I totally agree, and I, I would say even more broadly than that, you know, it, it, it really underlines the case for a structural reform of the media in the, the sort that, you know, we've been advocating and many others have. You know, there's this kind of... The decisions that people make within media structures matter, but then, of course, we do need to take seriously the sort of incentives and that are built into the system and the ways in which that impacts on decision-making and people's room for manoeuvre and the rest of it. And we've had kind of a natural experiment, haven't we, where is the media actually going to be responsive to a process of transformative change? Well, we know now, like, pretty clearly that they will not, you know. Yeah, and yeah. so they, they can't be left um, the way they are for the actual fairly pragmatic reason. And apparently Blair, by the way, is against pragmatism now because it's lacking principle or something, um, for the very pragmatic reason, they're just not able to do their jobs, you know, and they actually weren't even able to do their jobs before, because as you said, there was a lot, all, they, they missed all the big stories, you know, when you're talking about the last um, 20 years, but even in the most basic sort of sense, over reporting what's going on in the mainstream political system, they don't seem to be able to do that, they don't seem to be able to reflect it, and when we were talking about... Um, you know, the sort of elite institutions now which the left has been able to touch on. We're not talking about the BBC or the Observer sort of um, inflating, you know, uh, narrow oppositional forces. We're talking about real social change that's going on in society that the media's not reflecting. So I think, um, you know, it's it's frustrating to see um, the ways in which the uh, these institutions have responded. But, you know, it's not... It's obviously not hugely surprising, but it, it clearly underscores the need for, yeah, one, a sort of reform agenda for these institutions, and two, as you say, um, the need for the left to take seriously the idea of, um, of investing and building in alternative organisations and institutions that are able to perform those kinds of roles, um, be it reporting um, or investigating or find, finding ways of us um, you know, as collectives to be able to uh, make sense of the world and talk to each other and form, you know, publics, um, as it were. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think it, on, the, on that, before we, before we leave that, it's important, I think, that, that strategic investments, if you like, by the left in the communicative sphere do have to prefigure the kind of media that we want to see. I don't think... Uh, you know, the, in the thirties, you would invest in newspaper because that was that was an affordable, effective technology for conveying your ideas from the centre to your periphery. It was a very it was a unidirectional model of, of influence, um, which reflected the technological capacities of the time. Um, we are moving, I think, towards. Uh, a, we obviously we have a very different set of of technological capabilities 
And there isn't, it seems like part of making, if we're serious about this word hegemony, if we're serious about making the left hegemonic, we need to understand, I think, that it's not just about pushing your point of view in a, in a, in a liberal public sphere. The point is to change the public sphere mm. so that it is a democratic public sphere where you can speak as well as be spoken to, and to do so in conditions of, of you know, mutual recognition. And frankly, if, I think if, if this emergent left can find some material resources to build these sort of prefigurative communicative forms, um, they, will be, they will be influential in terms of the, the kinds of ideas that they'll be able to popularise and the information they'll be able to share. But I think they'll be incredibly persuasive just in their form. Can I just, like, you know, we should wrap up soon and we can talk about this in um, future shows, but what, what specifically, if you are, can be specific, are you suggesting you, you, that the left should in, invest in? Are we talking about sort of digital platforms or networks or something of that, of that type? What kind of prefigurative media do you think is needed? Yeah, so I, so I do think that the... Um, I think it would be really useful for... Um, for the left to start looking at um, developing communicative platforms um, that could begin at, at you know quite a, on a quite a local level, and they could be tied to um, party organising at a local level, but would would reach out and become attractive to people who aren't currently in the party, who aren't or, or who aren't currently engaged in the party as much as they might be, and once you want. And parallel to that, I think you do need to be developing um, original content, both, as you say, as, on the basis of investigation, but also on, in, as, as it were, synthesizing information. Investing in, um, in forms of content that uh, either, either are very easy to share in, in, in all, all, all networks, or help people to understand abstract ideas quickly uh, and simply. So I would like to see, you know, the kinds of work um, that uh, Momentum were doing in the election uh, kind of n normalised and uh, expanded uh, so that they, uh, there is a constant, um, there, is, there is information or there are forms of, as it were, digestible information being developed for sharing on networks. So you're talking videos here mainly? Or you video or video, pamphlets, video animation. When I say pamphlets, I mean, you know, some sort of digital form of that. Yeah, and also, you know, I'm a great, I'm a, you know, I'm enough of a kind of recovering publisher to think that you know, there's some there's some place for written paper pamphlets. Mm -hmm. But as you as you as you say, I think you know the 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 the, the coming media, f the dominant media form is going to be digital. It's going to be platform based, mm -hmm. and we 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 urgently need to start thinking about how how we organise communicative platforms in ways that don't presume the existence of a billionaire in the middle. Yeah. Um, what is it? You know, what would it be like to have a mutually owned and mutually controlled network? Um, what kinds of demands would that make on us? Would it would it have to be demanding for individuals? Um, and as I say, even absent that, even if you relied on, if you like, on on the kind of spectral networks that exist through face to face, through you know um, the, the the party institutions and through these these um, these social networks, like you know, commercial networks like Facebook and Twitter, that are used by by the left, <coughs> there is a there is a um, 
there is a case, I think, for, for generating content to feed these networks and to help, help build their self-confidence. You know, 10 years after the crisis, I think still there is a, there's a reluctance for people sometimes to take on interests like finance because they don't really understand the, the technicalities. And they're still going back to the, the obduracy of the centre. You know, the, the brass neck of the financial sector where it says, you know what, we trash the economy, but we're, we still know what we're doing. It's astonishing. Um, but I think once you appreciate what, the, what they're actually doing, you realise the extent to which their bluster is all they have. Um, and they're, they're kind of, you know, gesturing towards this imagined complexity in their operations. Is really, that's what there is. That's what keeps them, you know, they're, they're, their niche in the economy is to be rich. That's it. That's that's what they're for is to be rich. We can have like something like um, momentum. What you know at the moment they sort of go after the Tories because they're essentially an electioneering mm. operation, aren't they? But really, what we'd need if we we're going to have a transformative political movement, which is people that are going to be going after the people who are running society, not just the Tories, but yeah, the people running the city, and yeah. you know, to yeah. develop an understanding of how our political economy is structured. I mean, that's what Corbynism should be focusing on if it wants to wants to be able to yeah, be serious about transforming British society, not just British society of course, but like um, you know, being part of an international um, movement for for political and social change. Um, so yeah. Um, and going back to your point about you know the emer- the emerging like the emerging media landscape, these investments in content I think would have to take and would have to promote the idea of things like um, uh, you know d- democratic democratic control networks without necessarily having to create them from scratch. Mm-hmm. Um, it may be that um, this is something that emerges as a as a key demand for government that we have a public network uh, which can can exist as a space in which elite elite speech can be challenged effectively. And, and I think you know the reason that I'm on the left is not I don't, it's not out of any great humanitarian sensitivity it's just because i think the right is 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 it's it's a congregation of fantasies right? they're, they, they're not they're not defensible in fact that's that's my issue with the right is that they are that they they are deluded and i'm starting to sound like grayling <laughs> i was just um, saying you've shifted over to the new atheist we all have these people with their wrong ideas in our in our public space but, <laughs> now but where I differ from, I suppose where I differ from Grayling is that I understand that the, the, these fantasies are necessary to their class position. They need yeah. to believe these things in order to be comfortable and, and, and you know, energetic in the pursuit of their class interests and energetic in pursuit of their material interests. Yeah. And there is, a, there is a much broader swathe of people who are not well served by these fantasies. These these fantasies do not serve them well, and they they don't really. I don't think often they don't consciously believe them, but they they don't feel confident enough to challenge them. And I suppose part of an agenda for left media is to say, actually, you know, with the with, with as much with as much disinterest as as is possible in this sphere, let's try and understand the facts of the matter. Let's try and understand how these things work, without pretending that. Once you've once you've looked at religion, or once you've looked at some element, you understand the whole, right? 
every description is, is incomplete, every, every description is, is partial. But there are better descriptions available right now um, for how, how a political economy works, how society works, um, how the housing market works or doesn't work and so on. And these need to be, I think, kind of promoted much more energetically. And, and they, it's amazing that, 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 cent, that centre-left media don't see this as their role, but they, they, they just don't seem to. Shall we wrap up with a more cheerful note as to uh, where where we're going? I think yeah. Didn't you also want to mention um, a book that you'd read? You were going to give a shout yeah. Out. So, um, just having demonstrated how seductive new like new atheist um, ways of thinking can be, let's let's move swiftly on. Um, the, the 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 book that has um, come across my attention. I only heard about it last night, so I haven't read it yet. Um, it's published by the Dem. Democracy Society by Paul Evans, which is, and it's called Save Democracy, Abolish Voting. And Paul is—he—he uh, he works for Bechtel, I think, in his day job. Um, but he's been thinking about political reform for a while, and he proposes the idea of a a citizen's budget for democracy, something along those lines. And I think the idea there is that every individual would have some of money to dispose of as they saw fit in order to pursue their interests in the public sphere. So they would be able to fund lobbyists, they'd be able to fund politicians or political parties, or journalists. So it's, it's a form of communicative democracy of the sort that you know, has a sort of family resemblance to, to ideas I've talked about in the past and ideas that McChesney and Nicholl and the States have talked about and so on. And I think it's interesting that he's, he's raised this possibility Partly because by framing it as a, an intervention in a much more narrowly political sphere, you might actually be able to um, work around some of the, um, uh, the anxieties that journalists and editors have about permitting discussion of the structure of, of incentives and threats in the media. Mm -hmm. So I will be reading that over the Christmas period. Um, and... Um, We'll see. Um, we'll see what we make of that. Should we get on the show if you like it? Well, I think you know. I, th I think in 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 all likelihood, it will he be a he'll be a, an interesting person to have a chat with. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. He seems to. Um, he seems to have thought about these things quite quite deeply. I'm assuming he wants to come on. Obviously, we haven't been in touch. We we can't. We have no. You know, we have no coercive power, do we? No. Which is probably yeah, a blessing. nothing but our charm. <laughs>
the, the place that we're at is compared to um, to where we've been, I think. So, I mean, my reasons to be cheerful are the same as, as they always are. You know, it, it's, it's so, it seems that so quickly you can adapt to new the new normal at the moment um, and yet other people don't seem to be able to do it. But it does, you know, it, it, you, I don't know, one of the features I think of like very rapid change is that, yeah, you do get used to new situations very, very quickly and start to take them for granted. And um, I think the reason to be cheerful is that we are probably, in all likelihood, um, now within months or possibly a year or two of something like a, 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 a dramatic political shift, the likes of which we haven't seen for decades um, in this country. That's true, and I think... Is that too general as a reason to be true? No, cheerful? I think it makes, you know, it's Christmas, isn't it? It's yeah, exactly. It's sort of, uh, for mince pies and a sort of vague, <laughs> a vague sense of uplift. Yeah. Um, no, I think... I, and I transformative mean, rupture in the world, I should I, say. Let's quite, not forget that's quite, the original yeah. meaning of Christmas. Yeah. Merry Christmas. Messiah cometh. Merry Christmas and a transformative rupture. <laughs> um, and I think you're right as well that... that that change is coming, and I think that the energising, the energising feeling that, that I think we have is that the nature of the change is, is to some extent up to us. There's a sense in which we have uh, we have a moment now where, again, this, this sort of infuriatingly stable um, uh, me media system is telling us that nothing's going to change, nothing's going to change, but we know that things keep changing, and they keep changing in profound ways. And that actually it's up to us in this kind of, in this pause, to do everything that we can to, to understand the nature of, of what's possible um, and, to, and to, to build a, a kind of shared understanding of what, what a transformative Labour government would look like. Yeah. Um, it, it's vital, I think, that we don't take seriously the centrist conception of politics as, a, as, a, as it were, you know, that West Wing image of a room full of really smart people talking quickly about stuff that's really clever. It's not like that. There are yeah, it was like that. Right? There is, there's nothing there. Um, what it is, what, it, what politics is, is about the conversations that we, we have together and the decisions that we make about the kinds of life that we want. And politicians will reflect that. You know, Corbyn is a product of people wanting change. Mm. He's not... For all the charisma that attaches to him, and, and, and for all his significance as a as a political figure, he is a product of people deciding to support him. Um, and the the task ahead, I think, is to lend some of that charisma, some of that that sense of movement and excitement to a transformative program, which you know, in all candor, we haven't thought through. And that, I suppose, in terms of left media, I think one of these that's, that's that's heartening is that you know people are talking about deep change. So I listened to Navarra last week, Nina Power, and um, um, James James Butler. James Butler were talking about um, a you know a post-capitalist state, and they were doing doing so with a real sense that actually this is a this is a live possibility. Yeah. Um, and and that's that's an exciting place to be. I think. Definitely. So let's wrap it up, shall we? One thing we didn't do is wish listeners a Merry Christmas. So a Merry Christmas to you all and um, a Happy New Year. We will be back in the new year for a second series, won't we, Dan? Yes, we will. Um, so do get in touch with us. 
and let us know if there are things that you want us to um, to cover. Otherwise, we will just improvise in our usual way. Um, <laughs> and hopefully... Um, who knows? Who knows what, what nuggets from my publishing career we'll learn about next. So, um, yes, Merry Christmas to everyone, and uh, we'll see you in the new year. Goodbye. Thank you.